Hello and welcome to episode number 33 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I'll be chatting with Ben Kalina. Ben is an award-winning documentary producer and director whose work explores the colliding forces of human nature and environmental change. His first feature documentary, Shored Up, explored sea level rise and the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy as it ran headlong into unchecked coastal development. Shored Up won the 2014 Sundance Institute's Lights Day Sustainability Award and was broadcast on DirecTV. Ben has recently produced and directed the Nova film, Can We Cool the Planet?, which traveled around the world to discover emerging technologies and nature-based solutions to counteract climate change. Here's the trailer. Rising temperatures. We need to reduce the heating effect. Can we stop them? Every year, the damages are worse. From going too far. Now, help may be on the horizon. It's going to be revolutionary. New technologies that could turn down the thermostat. It's like science fiction. But are they enough? Can we cool the planet on Nova? Ben's in-progress feature doc, Plan C for Civilization, follows the scientist at the center of the controversial field of solar geoengineering, a technology designed to cool a quickly warming world. In addition to his independent documentaries, Ben produces a range of short films and other video projects through his company Mangrove Media. Based in Philadelphia, Mangrove partners with clients including the Nature Conservancy, Pan Environment, and the National Wildlife Federation. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share. And now on to my conversation with Ben Kalina. Hello, Ben Kalina. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to uh, be chatting with you. Ben Kalina is a producer and a director of uh, films that live at the intersection of climate and science. Is that about correct, Ben? I think so. Yeah, that sounds about right. And you you head up a uh, production company called Mangrove Media. Uh, so I want to get into that and I want to get into your work, uh, uh, some of your more recent work, particularly a fascinating Nova uh, that you were a director of uh, that aired last fall, but is still widely available. Um, in fact, it's available everywhere uh, via the Nova website. Uh, it's called Can We Cool the Planet? Um, ben, question mark. Yeah. Question mark. Yes, yeah. exactly. Can <laughs> we cool the planet? That is a question. And it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a pressing question. Uh, tell me how you came to this intersection of science and climate via filmmaking. 
I'm definitely not a scientist. Um, that's, that's for sure. And you know, my declassified high school transcript would attest to that. Uh, but, it has uh, been declassified. <laughs> if you can find it, it's out there. Um, <laughs> a lot of redacted portions. A lot of redacted, not a lot of vowels in my grades in, uh, in, in high school and science. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, so yeah, I'm kind of like a, a, someone who is really interested in earth systems, I guess you'd put it. For people who are, who are maybe like a little preoccupied or have thought about climate for a long time, there's usually some sort of inciting event, just like in a film, that got that going. And for me, that was when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in, in rural part of Vermont and my parents uh, and I were like sort of deeply woven into the uh, ski industry. Um, Mm -hmm. We ran a ski lodge. And so I I had a pretty good sense um, at that time. Skiing was kind of my, my, my whole world. And I read your mountain Killington. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. We ran like a a place where folks would, would come and stay in dormitory style rooms. And and my mom led the cooking for a hundred people for breakfast and dinner. And so it was all built around, you know, skiing and, and weather and climate. And I read uh, about James Hansen in 1988 when I was 12 years old. I don't know why I was reading this, but I, I you know, at 12, I read about this thing called global warming. Um, and that's when he testified before Congress uh, mm-hmm. famously. And uh, so I probably read some articles about it afterwards or an editorial. And it just struck me that, you know, this thing could just totally change everything about the world that I knew, you know, from both like, loving to, to go skiing, but winters in general, and also just like the economics of making what my parents did work, you know, when mm-hmm. you have a difference between this big snowstorm and a, and a really big winter or, you know, what you was make, made or broken around Christmas is a few degrees of temperature. Um, and so that's kind of where it lodged in my head. And I think ever since then, I've just been thinking about different ways in which climate, uh, and weather affect us, um, on things that may seem maybe not life and death like skiing, mm-hmm. but also of course on, on just a whole much broader range of, uh, critical systems and, and life cultural, you know, just culture, tradition, economics, of course, human life, ecology, everything. So that's kind of how it, it grew for me. And, at the, you know, sort of in high school, I started getting interested in filmmaking and, and pursued that in college. And then, uh, after college as an independent filmmaker and then in grad school and so forth. So that's, that's always been a big interest of mine. And somewhere around the time I was in just before grad school is when I started deciding, sort of decided that I was going to make films about climate. I couldn't kind of keep them separate anymore. Yeah. And in addition to the, can we cool the planet? Uh, you've also produced um, among others, a film called a river reborn and shored up both of which are climate stories uh, River Re- Reborn uh, is about an effort about uh, seven critical sort of uh, super rivers uh, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania that had all been almost killed, essentially, by um, uh, mill runoff. It's one river in particular is the focus of the story, but it, yep. it, it's a problem that addresses or affects a lot of rivers in Pennsylvania um, and it's sort of in, in West Virginia and other places where coal mining is a big deal. Right. Um, so it's when, when those mines are shut down, uh, until 19, until the clean water act, people could just shut them down and walk away from them. And, and that's what they did. And then they eventually fill up with water when that water overflows, it carries all kinds of heavy metals and toxins with it. And they just flow and flow and there's really no way to stop it. Um, and they, and they flow into rivers, of course. So, um, you know, so, uh, 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 
the, the, the web of waterways works mm-hmm. uh, and and they and they just kill everything in the river. So this is a film about an effort to to reverse that problem. It's less climate, more you know, kind of local environment, but you mm-hmm. know, coal and climate are inwoven in as well, interwoven. So oh yeah, most definitely. When you find yourself out in the world as a uh, a trained and talented filmmaker, and then you also have you're also driven by this passion around climate preservation, uh, broadly speaking. Tell me about the process of being able to essentially satisfy two mandates. One, you want to remain an employed filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And two, you want to tell the kind of stories that you want to tell. Yeah, that's not uh, <laughs> it's not always so easy. Right. I mean, I think, you know, so it's, it's taken different iterations over the course of my life. And I think, honestly, like everybody has to figure out some way that works for them or doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that probably changes at different stages of life. So, you know, my twenties, I was able to earn a lot less money and just kind of start to work on projects. And I worked on, as an associate producer, um, on a couple of films with a really wonderful director named Barbara Ettinger and her husband, Sven Husaby, who served as a producer, but also starred in the second film, which was another climate film about ocean acidification, um, called the sea change. And so I was able to get a lot of experience, um, at the time and live pretty simply that, that all just was a package deal. Basically I could work on films and, um, you know, just, just kind of get by, but you know, I, I got a little bit older, went to grad school. Um, you know, that's, that's about when I decided to open up a small production company. Um, and that was a way to, um, you know, make some money and, and keep myself afloat, have a floor under myself, uh, while continuing to pursue my own projects mm-hmm. in my spare time, which is mm-hmm. essentially what it becomes, you know, it's like nights, weekends. And I mean, the nice thing about having a small production company is you, can dictate your own schedule to some extent, right? You need to break free. And that's Um, mangrove media. That's mangrove media. Yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, that worked. I mean, at first it was doing whatever kind of work I could find. And, you know, I I actually started, my first client was a company called endless pools who do these little pools that were, they're modular, small little rectangular pools that have a current counter currency swim against the current in them. They're yeah. I've seen a lot of their ads. Yeah. And so, I, it, it always sounds fascinating to me. Yeah. Do laps, but really you don't have to move. It's sort of right. the pool equivalent of a treadmill. Exactly. And they, and they have a treadmill and a pool too. So if you've seen their ads, you've probably seen my work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it turns out that the founder of that company, they're based near Philadelphia is actually a really in, terrific, uh, like-minded person named James Murdoch, who, um, is actually an engineer by training. And he and I talk about schemes for trying to solve climate and environmental problems all the time. Cause that's his, that's, that's his side hustle. If you'll, you know, pardon the term is he's, sure. he's just looking to fix things. And, um, I actually find myself drawn to folks like James quite often because I love that energy. And, um, yeah, it's fascinating. And, and you know, what's, what's, what, what can become frustrating, uh, when as a consumer of media, around uh, climate issues is that, you know, as as tends to be the case in the media, uh, you want to take complex issues and they get they get simplified into, you know, good guys, bad guys. Well, if we do this, then it's going to cost jobs and money and so forth. And in in your films, what comes to the fore is the role of innovation 
the the continual role of innovation. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that you, you know, you made this connection with a guy who's an engineer and to be an engineer, you're constantly innovating. That's, that's just yeah. the way your brain is wired. And so to be able to look at climate issues as uh, almost like engineering problems that need to be addressed and solved and to remove the illusion that, well, if you don't have a one fix for everything, then we don't want to talk to you. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like that's uh, mandatory, um, you know, for, for somebody to be applying their intelligence to improving the climate. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's hard because, you know, the initial wave and, and still current wave, but although it's sort of waning a little bit of, of films and media about climate um, for a long time, were all about identifying the problem um, because that was really important. You know, it was just, it took a very long time. And honestly, it probably never would have sunk in if we hadn't actually gotten to the point where climate related disasters are affecting us all, all the time. Um, so at this point, it's, you can't miss it. But like for a long time, people were, you know, feeling like they needed to make films and tell stories that just raise the issue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the environmental movement for a long time, too, this is something I've sort of come to realize recently, you know, it's like for a long time was about. Um, solving problems, stopping, stopping behaviors, stopping doing things. And I think that's the stance that people took for a long time, especially around, you know, burning fossil fuels and all the, the problems that lead to climate change. Um, but we're, we've, we're kind of at this weird moment now where, um, you know, the truth is we, we, it's not about stop. It is, it is ultimately absolutely about stopping. We have to stop burning, but it's not just about stopping anymore. Right. Um, you know, we've crossed a point where I think, you know, it's, it, we can't solve this problem by simply stopping. And so then you have to look at, okay, well, then what else, what other ways are there, unless we're just going to throw our hands up, you know, right. to try to deal with this. And, and that comes with all, a whole other sort of problem, you know, which is like the engineering solutions aren't, you can't just engineer your way out of anything. There's social and political dynamics all of yeah. these choices. Yeah. That point is made real, really uh, clearly and vividly in uh, can we cool the planet? The Nova film that you, uh, that you directed. Uh, how did, how did that project come into your world? So that is actually kind of almost an outgrowth of a, of a, another film that I've been working on since <laughs> embarrassingly long, maybe since 2010 is kind of where I peg it, which is um, a film about one of the stories in can we cool the planet, which is, um, the story of the solar geoengineering research okay. being done at Harvard uh, by David Keith and Frank Koich. Uh, they have a project called ScopeX, which is, um, you know, fairly soon, probably going to launch its very first outdoor experiment. But uh, the idea behind that is one that caught my eye back in 2010 um, when I went to a conference at Asilomar uh, in California, which was called the Climate Engineering or climate intervention conference, I think is in Asilomar. And there was a lot of scientists and journalists who came together to talk about um, a lot of the ideas that are in the Nova film, um, but at a, at a much earlier stage. And they were trying to figure out like how to come up with a way to govern the technologies. It, you know, it was an early attempt and recognition that like these technologies, while very, very young, none of them were really even, you know, being demonstrated yet. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to need some sort of a governance structure. So anyways, fast forward, say seven years, I've been working slowly but steadily on this project and really focusing in on David Keith and Frank Koich's work. And, and what's the um, what, what's the essence of their of their mm, particular project? Solar geoengineering refers to the idea of um, how to basically 
reflects sunlight away from the earth one way or the other. Okay. Um, and so there's, there are several different um, ideas that, about how you might do that. None of them have been really tested or experimented on in any significant mm-hmm. way outdoors. Um, a couple of them have to do with uh, clouds. There's some people might've heard of marine cloud brightening. Um, yep. and, and there has been a project actually that did a pretty, the, by far the biggest outdoor kind of test or experiment last year in the Great Barrier Reef. Um, there's also a group in, in California that's been working on that steadily. That's the idea of brightening marine clouds by spraying tiny par- uh, particles or aerosols into them. And we kind of go into that in the Nova a little bit. Yeah. And, what, and, and if I understand it correctly, what gets accomplished there is that the sun's, the, the light from the sun essentially bounces off of these clouds, mm-hmm. uh, these brightened clouds. And so therefore you, you don't have the uh, situation where the heat is trapped. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's called albedo is the, the term that refers to the reflectivity, uh, right. sort of the great, the gradient of reflectivity. And so they're doing that already. And so the question is, can you, can you make it brighter? Can you make them brighter and reflect sunlight away? So mm-hmm. that it goes right back out into space and doesn't get absorbed into the dark ocean water beneath it. Um, where, you know, oceans absorb, uh, some, the vast majority of heat on the planet already. So, um, so there's that, there's an idea called cirrus cloud thinning, um, which would accomplish a similar goal. Um, and then there's an idea, which is the one that this film looks into um, that I'm looking into more seriously, which is uh, called solar geoengineering, which is essentially meant to mimic what happens when certain large volcanoes erupt um, and spray particles. In this in case of volcanoes, they're called sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere. So they get shoot, you know, real high up in the air, and um, create like a thin veil around the planet. So like when Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991, it cooled the planet by about a degree Fahrenheit for about a year. Um, and the idea is, well, what if, what if we could do that instead of volcanoes? Uh, and what would be the mechanism to, to, to shoot this material into the atmosphere? Um, you know, what, what I think is most commonly considered likely at this point, or, you know, not likely, but potential is, mm-hmm. is, is some high altitude planes, basically. Okay. You have a fleet of high altitude planes that basically flew around the clock and, you know, deposited, um, dust of some kind or another, you know, for lack of a better word, aerosol particles into the stratosphere. Yep. Yep. Um, and so that, you know, there's, there's what they, what the scientists want to do is look into different particles and see how different kinds of particles interact in, in the stratosphere not just in computer models because they need to computer models are only as good as the physical evidence that you've input into them. And so, you know, they don't know enough at this point about, you know, what kinds of particles might either reduce some, some concerns are that like sulfate aerosols, which is what volcanoes put up into the stratosphere um, actually can, can, can destroy ozone chemically. And so we know that's not a good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to figure out what, what, how, what different chemicals, uh, particles might they want to use? How long do they stay aloft? How much light do they reflect? Do, how do they interact with other things in the stratosphere? They, they want to do some basic research, but it's incredibly controversial because people hear, you know, about taking this research outside and they worry understandably that this could lead to a form of technological lock-in, um, that if people think that there's a way to easily kind of wash our hands of the problem that we won't do the hard work to cut emissions, right? If we can just control temperature, like it's a thermostat and why would we bother converting our energy system? And so 
you know, that's where you get started down the road of lots. And not to mention that there are unpredictable, you know, geophysical impacts on weather and climate, other kinds of things that would trickle down for this. Uh, so what so far has been the largest scale um, experiment uh, with this technology? There's really, really not. There has been no outdoor experimentation. I think that some people will say that uh, there's a scientist, Lynn Russell, uh, I think she's at UC Santa Barbara, who's done some very limited, small, small studies um, outdoors with a sprayer. Um, There was an attempt in 2012 in England, in Great Britain, to do um, to to put a balloon up and to spray some liquid from it and to do some initial research that got shut down because there were questions about who was financing it. And, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, this, this group at Harvard has been trying to do an outdoor experiment now for the last few years, we've been following them as they've tried to do this. And most recently they actually had a, um, partner and, a and a whole, you know, they, they had arranged to do their first stratospheric experiment in Sweden which, with the Swedish Space Corporation this June, so next month. Um, and all seem to be on track with that, actually, uh, until about two months ago when all of a sudden um, there started to be some very uh, robust pushback from folks in Sweden. Um, and it, and who are, who are the folks in Sweden pushing back? Are these are these is it the government? Is it business? Is it citizens? So it's um, it, we're actually going to be going over there to, to try to get down to the bottom of it um, in about a month ourselves. But from what it looks like at this point, it's a mix. Um, there was uh, a group called the Sami, um, who are the indigenous uh, people who are you know indigenous to Sweden uh, and other parts of Scandinavia. Um, they, along with Greenpeace Sweden um, and a couple of other groups, wrote some strongly a strongly worded letter, both to the Harvard advisory committee, which oversees this research and also to the environment minister of Sweden. Um, uh, the Swedish space corporation is a government, uh, managed company. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a nationalized company. And I mean, short story is it got pretty uncomfortable. I think the politics very quickly. Um, and, uh, the Swedish government basically said, you know, the, the, the letter went to the Harvard advisory committee. They basically reversed course and said, okay, we need to take more time and do more public, uh, engagement around this in Sweden. And, uh, once that happened, the Swedish government basically said, put the kibosh on it and said, no go. Um, and so, you know, uh, they're, they are now, they've, they've moved on from Sweden and, and are now looking back to the U S as with, for potential partners. Yeah. There are so many tentacles to each of these initiatives. And so the, the film, can we cool the planet looks into probably a half dozen initiatives uh, taking place around the globe, everything from recycling emissions, uh, direct air capture, concentrated synthetic energy, carbon neutral uh, fuels. Did you get the sense when you were working on this project that the the people involved in all these initiatives, are they talking to each other? Is is there ever the opportunity to kind of take a comprehensive look and say, and, and I realize this is super hypothetical, uh, but to say something, well, you know, if your initiative gets us 20% there and this initiative gets us another 10% there, mm-hmm. if we combined all these now, I can't even begin to wrap my head around the unanticipated yeah. consequences because, right. you know, if initiative A is successful, then maybe it makes initiative C, uh, you know, not even feasible and things of that nature. 
Yeah. I mean, that's really like the giant knot at the center of all this, at least as a someone coming in trying to say, well, okay, well, okay. What, what's what first in, in, in what amount and right. how do you do this? Um, you know, you know, we look pretty hard to find someone who's done that work. There actually is one, there is one, um, group and, and with a tool that's, that's really fascinating tool that they've developed. It's, it's a collaboration between MIT and uh, climate, Interactive, I think is the name of the, the firm. Um, mm-hmm. I should double check that before I attribute it to the wrong person, but it's, it's a tool called En-ROADS. Um, and what they do is they have created a sort of a background uh, set of data that they use and that they update that um, essentially it takes a lot of what you're asking. It like really breaks down statistically each of these, not just the, like what we did in this film was the tip of the iceberg. You know, they, they look at about 50 different approaches to dealing with climate, um, from, you know, technological and even a social perspective. So like even I think educating young women and girls is one of the things that they plug in as a way to deal with climate. Right. Um, but a lot of it has to do with energy systems and transportation and, so you can take and you can make a lot of decisions with them and you can kind of pull levers and say, we want to do this much of this by this date or this much of this by this date. And it will calculate in live time for you how you get to uh, the Paris Climate Accord targets of, of you know, two degrees, stay within the two degrees Celsius targets. <clears throat> so it's very fascinating. And they do it actually with groups all the time, and in particular with uh, legislators. So they will go with congressmen and women and senators and they'll do private meetings and they'll show them how this works. And it's a way of educating people about all these different tools. So there is a tool out there that is pretty cool. Um, but it doesn't really, you know, there's, it's, it's still a little bit, it doesn't answer the question when you look at any one particular technology and go, what's the potential here and how does it compare to these other ones in the real world? Like how are, how are these going to interact? And, um, you know, so when we tried to answer that question, we would, in the film at least, we would, as you saw, put it pitted against the giant block of carbon dioxide, the historical carbon dioxide that we have up in the in the atmosphere. First, the annual emissions that we put up there, and then also beyond that, all the carbon dioxide that we've put up that's still up there. The answer to your question of do they talk to each other is probably not so much. Like these folks are very, very busy and and many of them come from totally different areas of science and totally different parts of the world. Right. Um, and so, you know, you might see them talking to each other within the silo of a certain, you know, physicists might talk to physicists, right. Tree people know of other tree people. Um, but you know, it, in, in, in Australia, there, there's a huge program to try to save the great barrier reef. And so that brings together a lot of different scientists and a lot of different disciplines, um, including marine cloud brightening folks and others. Um, but you know, the answer is really, I don't think there's that much cross pollination. Um, and, and I think that's okay. You know, I, I think in some ways it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just, we have to pursue so many different directions at once. And then we have to have really smart people somehow making some decisions about which ones we move forward with, um, and how quickly. Yeah. When I was watching the the movie, the analogy kept coming to my coming to me that, you know, if you were, if you think of the, the planet as a patient, that's just sort of riddled with these conditions that, <laughs> that need to be addressed, yeah. uh, all of the scientists and, and innovators uh, in your film are, you know, it's this team of super doctors who are all addressing 
you know, one or another condition mm. the patient is, um, is, is, is carrying. So well, that's, it's a good, it's a good metaphor too, or analogy because, you know, the big problem I think is that, you know, the, everyone's treating a different part of the system. So it's as right. if you have different teams of doctors and they're in the same operating room, but you know, if somebody over here is, you know, putting some medication in that's meant to do one thing and someone over there is putting a different medication in, you know, how do we know that they're not going to come, you know, create a, create an explosion of some kind? Yeah, exactly. So stepping away from the science for just a bit, you know, at the end of the day with a project like this, your role is you're a storyteller, you're a filmmaker. How do you not get just overwhelmed by the complexity mm. of the story that you're trying to tell. And, you know, and, and you're, you're being called upon to uh, guide a lay audience through some pretty complex uh, topics and, you know, do it in a way that's visually engaging, which you succeed in doing uh, tremendously. How do you find yourself toggling between your various mandates yeah. I mean, I don't know that I have any great solution to it. I mean, you, you know, honestly, like one of the things I do is I try to have a couple different projects going at once because, uh, like a river reborn was kind of a, a smaller project that I could yep. do, um, along the way, because I know that some of these other projects that I'm doing are going to take a really long time to, right. to come, um, to really like find their focus because what happens is I often, I'm, I don't know what, what it means about my personality. I'm not, I'm not quite a catastrophist, but like, I do see a little bit further maybe than, than a lot of people when it comes to like where we're moving with climate, like, you know, realizing that, you know, we're on a trajectory that's going to put us in a certain position. And it's like a, probably a worse position than most people recognize some number of years down the line. And so when you look at like geoengineering, it's hard because a lot of times, like this film, the reason partly why it's taken me so long to make, this film that I'm working on about solar geo is like when I first heard about it, it was very much just an idea in a model and it's taken 10 years for it to get to the cusp of actually going outdoors and being something that you can build a story, a narrative around. Right. Um, and so, you know, you kind of have to have, I mean, so I don't know if there's a backwards way of answering your question, but you kind of have to have more than one thing going knowing that like some of those things in this field, at least aren't going to mature for a while to mm-hmm. a point where you can tell a cinematic story about it, you know? Yeah. So from that perspective, how did you go about saying, okay, well, from this point on, I can't take in any more new information because at mm. a certain, at a certain point, I got to lock this story down. Yeah. Well, it's easier with a Nova when you're doing a show for TV, cause they're, you know, paying you and you've got deliverables and you've got a, get your film made at a certain point. So, you know, like with a film like that, it's like you do all your, your pre-production and you do your pre-interviews and you, you start scheduling things and then, Mm -hmm. you know, you do fiddle until the last possible second. I mean, we were still, you know, deciding whether or not to include the Marine cloud writing project. Um, We were already in Iceland filming the first leg of our production and some news came through about them and we restructured things and, mm-hmm. and moved along from there. So, I mean, I think the thing is like, you know, as a filmmaker, you know, any film, no, no film is done until it's, it's being shown on, on in some format or another as exactly. you know, on television. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you just keep fiddling until you possibly, you no longer can. Uh, but 
you know, I think like with the solar geo, with this project, really what it was, I mean, I honestly, I started out this project looking more broadly at this idea of geoengineering. And I think I, I have focused my thinking around it mm-hmm. in part to based on the recommendation advice of scientists that I've spoken with, which was that for a long time, geoengineering was a term that described everything from carbon dioxide removal to solar geoengineering, which are two very, very different approaches, right? One is about taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and the other is about treating the symptoms of it, which are one of which is heat. Mm -hmm. And so they said, you know, a lot of people were like, don't, don't mesh these together. It's confusing for people. And so that's a really important thing. And at first I was following something that was happening in British Columbia back in 2012 and leading into 2014, which was the uh, ocean iron fertilization experiments, I guess you'd call it more like a project done by a tribe there called um, the Haida and also by um, somebody who's been very controversial named Russ George. And Mm -hmm. so that's a whole story unto itself. But the idea there is that they were trying to figure out if they could um, put particles of like iron, iron dust essentially in the oceans to create plankton blooms that would absorb carbon dioxide sink to the sea floor, um, sequestering that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And then part of which would get eaten along the way by juvenile salmon to boost the salmon population. So it was kind of like this. And then you, and then in theory, they, they thought they could sell carbon credits based on the carbon that got drawn down to the sea floor and sequestered yep. there. Um, is the Nova film, did, did the Nova film provide uh, the largest platform that your work has ever appeared on? Yeah. I'd say that was the most viewers. Yeah, that any film of mine has had at least in one shot. You know, and have you seen uh, have you seen any uh, indication of that in the reaction of the film, or you know, in other entities approaching you to help tell similar stories? Um, you know, it's interesting. It doesn't. I haven't had that experience. I mean, I've heard from people who've seen it who I know, but mm-hmm. you, you don't tend to get a lot of like unsolicited. Where I don't tend to get a lot of unsolicited email about programs like that. TV's weird. Not yet, not until you appear on this podcast. Yes, well, that's right. <laughs> that's why I'm. That's why I'm here. Uh, no, you know, I think it's um, it's pretty specific to people who who. I mean, I, I will <laughs> say that specific to humans who live on the earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, television is strange because you put something on TV and you, you might never know. Right. You know, it's like a tree falling in the woods, kind of. Right. You know, and and um, you know, you do hear from people occasionally who, you know, will, will, you know, you'll be talking and they'll connect the dots, but, um, you know, I, I mean, it certainly has been a great conversation starter. And whenever I talk to people, I mean, I, I will talk to people and then we'll start talking and I'll find out that they've seen that episode and had, yep. you know, didn't know that I directed it. So that's always nice. Well, one thing that is great is that the, the film is available in full uh, on, on the Nova website. And it's also, you know, available through Amazon prime. And I'm pretty certain I've actually seen it sort of chapterized on YouTube. Also uh, it's in full uh, on YouTube, actually it's in, well. it's in full on YouTube. That's yeah. great because, you know, once upon a time, not that long ago, you put together this brilliant thought provoking film. It would yeah. have its one showing on, you know, Nova and within a week, something else has kind of taken its place. And, uh, I've also been very impressed by the outreach efforts that, you know, Nova makes to make sure that uh, that that the film is used as a um, at least a conversation starter and as a supplement to educational initiatives. No, they were I mean, they're great to work with, too. I mean, the produce the executive producers there are just wonderful, very filmmaker friendly, um, yep. you know, which is yep. not always the case. 
Um, but they, and, and yeah. And I mean, the fact that they've kept, they don't keep all their films free in front of the paywall, but they do have this one in front of it, which right. means a lot. And it does make it so that it's much more accessible. Have um, you seen any indication that, you know, newer filmmakers are gravitating toward telling stories like this, given, you know, given your exposure to, uh, both science issues and the filmmaking communities? just in seeing films that are coming out at this point. I mean, I do think we've kind of run our course on most films that are meant to point out that we have a problem with climate. You know, there's, there's that ground has been covered and recovered many times. Um, And I think we'll continue to see those films, but I think that there is a real shift going on towards solutions focused storytelling, Which, which does provide a real opportunity. I mean, one of the things that I really liked about a river reborn was the revitalization of these rivers as, uh, you know, as essentially economic, economic uh, utilities, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, the recreational crowd that they're that they're now bringing in and then the spillover, no pun intended, uh, effect on the mm-hmm. communities that, you know, if you've you had a situation where you had a, a dead river that nobody would want to get near. And now in the spring and summer, you've got rafters coming on and you've got rafters, as the film points out, that they have some disposable income. That type of, of filmmaking and messaging around uh, the, the benefit and the solutions orientation feels to me like that there's a real opportunity to grab engagement with viewers and and ideally even beyond engagement beyond just being a viewer, being a participant. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, that's what I love about those kinds of stories too. They're, and you know, it, 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 people call it, uh, you know, there's this term like ecosystem services, um, okay. which I think is kind of a fancy way of saying like a healthy environment. Yeah. And uh, it's a little controversial in some regards because people talk about when they talk about conservation, they talk about, well, what's the value of conserving this land versus the cost of, of doing nothing or the cost of fixing it. And so you can factor a lot of stuff into that. But when you look at like a river reborn, it's saying, you know, the little Kanama has basically been written off now for quite a while. And what, what value do we bring back by spending the millions of dollars we need to spend to, you know, more or less fix the problem that we've created. And, and you, you know, you can look at it as a, as a one-to-one between economic development and um, cost, or you can also factor in all those other quality of life questions too. And, you know, I think when you look in this country at Appalachia in particular, you know, like people have learned and, and not just Appalachia, of course, I mean, these economic or environmental justice questions are, are, you know, everywhere, you know, they're, they're in the fence line communities around power plants and they're in communities in the mountains where mountaintop removal has destroyed land and poison rivers. But, um, you know, these communities all need to have a voice and also just recognize, I think a lot of people have grown resigned to the fact that they made a trade-off or their parents or grandparents made a trade-off and that trade-off was for jobs as people talk about in the film. And, you know, to some extent, what I really liked about this project was the ability to kind of talk about, you know, the legacy of coal without basically just, you know, trashing that history and the people Mm -hmm. who have a real sense of pride about hard work and, you know, providing for their families over the course of generations. And I think like there's a way to talk about a future that is, you know, beneficial for all. Um, without having to 
you know, trash the past. Your Nova film, going back to that for a moment, uh, Can We Cool the Planet, ends on uh, just this really great quote by a guy named Steve Bacala. He says, the combined might of human ingenuity, we can solve this problem with the combined might Mm -hmm. of the human ingenuity. And, you know, that hopeful note, as difficult as it's going to be, you know, I I don't know what the alternative to... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> to embracing that hope would be. And, you know, your, your, your film definitely in, it informs, uh, but it does also give the viewer a sense that, man, there is some brilliance at work here, uh, you know, within this community of scientists. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, Steve Acala, certainly one of them, uh, you know, he, I mean, there's, that's the thing. There's just, it is really inspiring to meet and talk to people. I mean, and the thing is everybody comes at it differently based on their wiring, you know, and right. their, their expertise. And, but I, I think, yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, we're not, it's certainly not going to be perfect, but I think the thing that we have to grapple with that I think a lot about is this idea of, you know, kind of like risk trade-offs and, you know, it's like really getting comfortable with the idea that like, there are no perfect solutions to this. Certainly not anymore. Um, we really did kind of miss the boat 30, 40 years ago on recognizing this iceberg coming and and turning slowly. And so we have to figure out now sort of like what you were saying, like, what are the, what's the combination of technologies and what are the trade-offs? Like we have to get really good at trying to figure that out. And that's where, it's like, I don't know if there's any one person who really has the answers to all of that. Right. Um, but I think, you know, Steve knows, Steve knows better than most people that there's a lot of complications and wrinkles and unknowns. But I think at base of it is this idea that like, you know, we are incredibly good at adapting and figuring things out. And that doesn't mean we're going to figure them out perfectly. Right. But we will probably still be here in a few hundred years. And so, you know, we got choices to make about what that looks like. Definitely. Well, Ben Kalina, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for the, uh, for, for the films that you're, that you're putting together and putting out there in the world. They're so well-made and they, they address such compelling issues. Again, the Nova is, can we cool the planet? It is available in its entirety on the Nova website, also on YouTube. And if you've got Amazon prime, you can find it there. Uh, you, you can find links to the rest of uh, Ben's films. If you go to mangrove media, we're going to put all of those links in the program notes. We will uh, also be keeping an eye on what else is coming, coming down the pike from Ben Kalina and company. So thanks again. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Michael. You too. 